Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Tony Hernandez, and you're listening to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast. Each week, we dig through our collection of immigrant interviews to bring you the voices behind some of our most memorable conversations. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. That's ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you. My guest this week is Gerardo Gonzalez, a Cuban refugee who came to the U.S. as a young boy back in the 1960s. His story, on the surface at least, is quite similar to my own. You see, Gerardo's family, like mine, fled communist Cuba, arrived penniless, and worked around the clock so that their kid could one day have a shot at a brighter future. Gerardo and I both came up in this pre-English as a second language era, which meant that we were taught using this old sink or swim approach to education. Our classes, in fact, were offered in a language that we didn't understand and taught by very well-intentioned educators who in turn couldn't understand us. I've got to tell you, man, it was an absolute recipe for disaster. In fact, as you're about to hear from Gerardo himself, he was so humiliated by this frustrated school principal one day that Gerardo shut down and withdrew from participating in class for the rest of his school days. Where our stories begin to diverge is when we get to the part where Gerardo Gonzalez eventually becomes one of the nation's most prominent educators eventually ascending to the rank of Dean at Indiana University School of Education. I love this story. It really is an unlikely story of an auto mechanic son who defies the odds and proves once again that in this country at least, anything, and I mean anything, is possible. Here's my conversation with Professor Gerardo Gonzalez. One of the most memorable scenes or anecdotes, if you will, of my uh, childhood was the day that the telegram arrived from the uh, Cuban government, giving my family and me uh, permission to to leave. Um, In those days, when a family wanted to emigrate, you had to ask for permission um, from the government, get an exit visa. And then what 
you would do is, is wait until you uh, were notified that you have been granted permission uh, to leave. And we didn't know when notice would, uh, would come. And um, I remember the day the telegram arrived giving us permission, me riding my bicycle home from school and my mother was standing outside excitedly waving a telegram in her hand say, mira, Hera, Hera, apurate, apurate. We only have 48 hours to get ready. You know, hurry, hurry. We only have eight out, 48 hours to get ready. And we went into a great deal of commotion and trying to get ready and running and collecting our, our things. And that night, um, I remember my father and some of his friends moving a mattress. And they were actually taking a mattress out of our home because our mattress was newer than my grandmother's mattress. And it had to do under the, under cover of darkness because everything had been inventory. Well, once we asked for permission to leave, everything was inventory and you couldn't give it away. You couldn't sell it. And so we wanted to leave my grandmother uh, a better mattress than she had. And we had to do that in cover of, uh, on the cover of night. And so I remember that, that they vividly both arriving home from school and and the commotion that followed and then the, the mattress exchange. The excitement that you saw in your parents that day, describe that for me. What were they particularly excited about? It, it was um, the way I, re I remember it, um, excitement about um, finally getting permission to leave and their ability to uh, pursue the dreams of a better life for my younger sister and me, mixed with the emotion of having to leave their own family behind and you know having to go and say goodbye to people that were you know dear to them, not just family but friends and neighbors. And so I remember a great deal of mixed emotions. Um, you know, my, my parents um, were willing to sacrifice everything that they had, uh, everything that they loved, so that their children could have a better, a better life. And I think that day the telegram arrived and then the interactions and going to my grandmother's and saying goodbye and, and the hugs and the kisses uh, told me that they were Relief and happy for for our future, but also pain that they were such high cost, uh, uh, both emotional and historical, and familial that that they were willing to to sacrifice in order to achieve their goal of a better future for us. Did you ever reconnect with your grandmother? My grandmother. Uh, eventually was allowed to leave via Spain. So she, um, she went to Spain and then my, my parents uh, who were already here in the United States had to um, uh, sponsor her to get a visa to enter the United States because by the time she left, there were no direct flights between Cuba and the, and the United States. So I remember my grandmother living in Spain for about a year um, while the, the, the paperwork, the process took a score for her to be able to 
uh, come to the United States. And then she joined us here, uh, lived with my parents uh, and me for a while. And then I went off to college and she remained with them until her uh, latter years in life. Mm -hmm. Our stories are so similar. My uh, grandmother also came up by way of Spain uh, once those freedom flights had shut down. It was a very, very, very similar story. Um, Looking back on your <clears throat> on your goodbyes, did the family understand how permanent those goodbyes would be, you think? You know, I'm not sure that my parents understood how permanent it was going to be. I, th I think in those days, most Cuban families uh, who were emigrating to the United States thought that this would be short term. Um, we would live in the United States for a while and then once things normalized, we would we would return, and and I think my my parents felt the same way uh, after we arrived here in the United States in Miami. Uh, that was our port of entry. Uh, they tried to settle here in Miami and and uh, work. Uh, Miami in those days was a sleepy little town. It wasn't even a tourist town. It was more of a retirement community, and so uh, there weren't very many jobs. Um, the economy was uh, uh, quite depressed. Uh, my, my father tried to find work. Um, and he was willing to do anything to help sustain the family um, because they thought it would be short term. Mm -hmm. But after a year of that, uh, it was evident that um, things were not changing as, as we thought. And, um, and uh, uh, we began to make provisions for, for a longer stay actually requested to the um, uh, Cuban Relocation Center, uh, a program sponsored for Cubans who were coming to, to Florida, mostly Miami, but uh, because the economy was such in, just, in such bad shape, uh, were in need of going elsewhere to find work. And so the government sponsored the Cuban Refugee Center through the, through the Cuban Refugee Center sponsor this program that would uh, relocate families, and we were relocated to uh, uh, to Pittsburgh. Uh, years later, uh, I was writing a, a, a memoir about my experiences as a child and our family uh, growing up, uh, or our family experiences in the United States as, as Cuban refugees. And my father told me a story that I never forgot. Uh, he, he said that he was so hurt and disappointed after we got here, because just before we left, there were lots of rumors that things were going to change very fast, and that uh, the, the the Americans were making plans to um, uh, 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 assist with the transition, and many of his friends who felt as as they, my parents did, my father did, that um, that uh, the directions that the government was taking is not one that they wanted to see um, uh, would, would talk among themselves. And, and they expected that if they stayed a little longer, and in fact, my father told me that some of his friends told him, if you stay a little longer, look at this is gonna change very quickly. And then he came here and he realized that those rumors were not true, that there was not a whole lot going on uh, and there were no evident uh, plans to, uh, uh, to affect change there. And so he expressed with a great deal of um, hurt uh, the disappointment that he felt. And I think that's when he realized, of course I was too young, no, but, but I think that's when he realized that 
this was not going to be a short-term um, uh, uh, experience and that we better um, try to set roots here. Mm. You were how old when you arrived? I was 11 years old. You were 11. Looking back, this was the pre-English as a second language era. So you were, like me, thrown into regular English language classes. Talk to me a little bit about that experience. An 11-year-old facing a new reality in school. Yes. That was a very uh, difficult thing to do, adjusting to a new language, a new culture, new expectations. Um, uh, was difficult all around, but the, but the language barriers and the difficulties of not knowing the language and having to go to school were were especially difficult. So, um, you know, I remember with, with great pride uh, getting in the uh, uh, airplane in Havana on the way to, to the U.S., uh, an old DC-3, this is 1962, um, and I had studied some English in the schools in, in Cuba, but not paid a whole lot of attention, very little. And I remember uh, a sign on the airplane going on said, no smoking. And I recognized it. And I was so excited to, to feel like I understood uh, a word in English, as simple as that was. But, um, but once you know, we were processed to the mm -hmm. Cuban Refugee Center and I began to attend school, uh, that excitement turned to a great deal of um, turmoil and disappointment. Um, there were lots of Cuban kids who were arriving here in Miami. Like I said, most wanted to stay here and get settled. The schools were not prepared at all for such an influx of non-English speaking students. And so they were trying all kinds of things. Uh, I remember uh, one of my first school experiences was being put into what we now think of as a swim or sink approach to language education. Um, you, know, you were just supposed to learn the language through immersion and learn the culture. Well, you know, language is, is more than just the written word or even the, the oral word. It's also the culture that it captures and what it expresses. And so even though we were um, in American schools, learning um, uh, some English, um, we were not adjusted to the culture at all. And so after that first experience, uh, the schools in Day County here in Miami began to experiment with um, um, bilingual education, where we were put in classes that were taught in Spanish uh, with Spanish-speaking uh, teachers, many of whom had no real teacher preparation, but because they spoke the language, they were put in front of the class. And the idea was that we would learn the subject matter in our native language at the same time we're learning English. And then once we knew enough English, we transitioned to regular classes. Well, um, these were very traditional schools. Um, again, not used at all to kids were different spoke a different language, acted differently. And we, I ended up in one of those uh, um, bilingual education classes. All my friends were Spanish. And I remember so vividly today a vice principal who was sent to the class because we had become known as the troublemakers in the school. And the principal was going to settle straight. And he came to the class, the, the teacher warned us that 
you know, we better be on our best behavior because the principal uh, was going to come to our classes and he was very upset because of the way we were acting. Well, this, this guy um, stood in front of the class. He was obviously very angry. He's shaking his fists and pointing his fingers and just telling students all sorts of things in English. Well, I didn't speak any English. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm shaking in my boots because I knew this guy was serious, but didn't quite understand what was being said. So I turned to a friend who spoke better English than I, and, and I said, Jose, que dice ese hombre? And Jose, what does that man say? At which point the principal pointed to me and ran to the back of the classroom, grabbed me by my arm, pulled me out of my chair, took me to the front of the class, and he's shaking in front of the class. Now, I'm really embarrassed, and I had no idea what was going on. Later, I found that what he was threatening the class is that we were being disrespectful and that we needed to respect authority and how disrespectful I was being because I spoke while he was trying to tell the class what was expected, that this was America and we better behave like Americans. Well, I didn't know what Americans behave like. I don't, I don't think, you know, any of us really did. We're trying to figure out uh, the best way to, to make it. Um, and there was no intent to be disrespectful, but he, he was making an example out of me. And so he pulled me out of the class and summarily suspended me. And um, uh, that was a, a, a school experience that, that really changed my life. I mean, uh, af after that uh, event, you know, I began to just simply not participate in, in any kind of learning. I never raised my hand. I never um, uh, inquired or became an active participant in what was being taught. All I wanted to do is keep my head down, stay out of trouble. And pretty soon the school system forgot about me and I became kind of invisible. And years later, uh, I was still afraid to participate, raise my hand and do anything. It was all directly related to that early experience as a non-English speaker uh, student in a classroom that uh, was culturally and linguistically very, very different. What eventually turned you around and turned you on to education? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my father was an auto mechanic. And if you've seen the hands of a, of a mechanic who's worked in engines for, for 40 years, 50 years, they take on a very distinctive look. And my father's way of motivating me to get an education and, and tell me that the sacrifice that he and my mother had made um, would be worthwhile only if I got an education. And so my father's way of motivating me to get an education was to show me his hands. He put it in front of my face. He said, look at mira, mira, mira mis manos. Look at look at my hands. I want you to get an education so that when you're my age, your hands don't look like mine. And those hands were so vivid in my mind forever. I mean, even today as an adult. So even though my parents were not educated people, I'm the first one in my family to attend college, they knew that education was important for their vision, their dreams for us to be realized. And they would motivate me in any way they, they could but they couldn't 
guide me to what I needed to do, or, you know, the college preparation, advanced courses, any, all those things that are second nature to those who come from college-educated families. And so um, my goal was to graduate from high school uh, because um, I didn't want to disappoint my parents, but college was not something that I ever thought about or planned for. I didn't even know what college was. And what actually led me to college was a friend of mine who had met in New Jersey after our departure from Miami. We went to New Jersey, lived there a few years before returning. And he was visiting me. He was attending the University of Puerto Rico. And I thought, as soon as I finished my high school diploma, I'm going to go to work in a boutique. I was working in a men's clothing store. I was enjoying that work. I thought I was good at and my goal was to go to work there, maybe become an assistant manager, maybe someday um, own my own store. Well, a recession hit Miami pretty severely, and the store was working and went bankrupt. And so here I was right out of high school, uh, no, no goals, um, uh, really um, uh, in despair. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And my friend uh, said, well, Gerardo, why don't you go to college? College? What is college? I had no idea. I literally had no idea what college was. And he explained, you know, college was a, a, a place of ideas and people from all walks of life go there to get preparation to you know, be professional or to you know, obtain advanced uh, degrees, uh, things that I didn't understand, but were obviously very meaningful to him. And so no options. I said, how do I do that? How do I go to college? And um, he guided me to Miami Day, uh, those days called Miami Day Junior College, um, which had just opened in Miami. And all you needed was a high school diploma, um, it had an open door policy. And so I went to Miami Day, inquire about um, what it would take to get in. And they said, well, you have a, a, a high school diploma. Um, you have to take some tests to see what placement we can give you and pursue, you know, several options in terms of degrees. And so that's that's how I led to how, how I began college. I, mean, I literally started to learn about college in college. How interesting! All of us heard the same advice from our parents growing up, and in my case, my parents don't have a college education either. Yet it was inculcated in us from day one that this was the only thing that no one would ever be able to take from you. And that's coming from people that had everything taken from them. So they knew what they were speaking about. Oh, yes. And that, 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 that almost seemed like a, like a canned speech. Like they all got together before leaving Cuba and said, okay, let's huddle up. This is what we're going to tell our kids when we come to the U.S. And we've seen the fruits of, 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 of that advice, no? Yes. Um, my parents always told me, you know, get an education. You need an education to be able to live a better life than what we've had as parents. Um, but they also made a, a point to remind me that it was something I could never lose, that it, it would never be taken away from me, uh, and that I needed to get an education because it's one thing that I could count on um, that uh, would always be there and would always be part of me. And, you know, at the time, I didn't fully understand 
that message. I mean, I do at some in some conceptual level. But years later, as I began to have deeper conversations with them, and I realized the pain of losing everything. And, you know, my father had a small business. It was a small mom and pop shop, a taller, you know, a small auto repair shop, welding shop. But it was his. It took a lot of pride in it, and it was providing for the family. You know, we we had meager belongings, but still we were beginning to have things that we needed to, to have a, a reasonable middle class, lower middle class life. And the pain of losing everything. I mean, the one day you realize that, you know, if 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 I want my children to have the kind of future that I will want for them, I'm going to have to sacrifice everything. And I, I couldn't even imagine as an adult beginning life at 35, 40 years old with nothing, giving up everything that I've had. And I think the message to me was not just get an education because it would bring you great benefits and a better life, but it's one thing that no matter what, you just cannot lose. And when I did get a bachelor's degree, my first uh, uh, about, you know, my first college degree uh, after Miami Day, uh, I transferred to the University of Florida. And that commencement day, you, you know, those words were so vivid in my mind. You know, I, I wasn't going to worry about the loans that I had to take. I wasn't worried about the politicians coming and taking this out because now I had an education. And, you know, I would figure out a way to pay the loans. I would figure out, you know, ways to find a job. Um, I felt so fulfilled, not just because of what I had learned and the way it had transformed my life, but because I felt this was something that I would always have. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you enjoy the stories we share and want to help us bring you more, Please join with hundreds of other donors and make a tax-deductible contribution to the Immigrant Archive Project. Thanks to many of you, we've been able to collect thousands of immigrant testimonies, which are now being proudly archived at the U.S. Library of Congress. If you'd like to help us expand our work, please go to ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. That's ImmigrantArchiveProject.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you. Talk to me a little bit about that sense of accomplishment for the whole family 
when the first member of a family graduates from college? Oh, my graduation from college was, was clearly a, a family achievement, a family affair, a source of family pride. Uh, all my family, my parents, my sister, my grandmother, you know, all the, all the people in my life um, took such joy to know that I got an education. And my major was psychology, and they knew precious little about psychology, but it didn't matter. The important thing is that I had attended college, and the pride in my, my parents' eyes, and the joy in telling others, friends, other families that I was in college, and I had gotten a degree. It was clearly it was a family achievement. You know, um, again, years later, um, after I wrote about our experiences, I gave my father a copy. And my father was not a very emotional man, very wise, very loving, but wasn't very expressive. And, you know, I gave him a copy, a draft copy of, of the memoir I was writing. And tears were streaming down his, his face. And um, I've only seen my father cry twice that I can think of. Uh, one was when his mother, my grandmother passed away. And, and the other was reading about my achievements and what you know, they had made possible. And it was clearly a, you know, a, a collective joy, a, a sense of celebration um, within him and the family that I had been able to achieve something. And so, um, you know, I, I will never forget my roots because of not only their sacrifices, but the reminder of where we came from and how education has changed my life. My children now educated themselves. And so their sacrifice, my getting education, became a transformative experience, a generational experience. And I'm sure they'll have uh, better opportunities and better life than, um, my parents did, um, and that I did as a child because they are now educators. And so that sense of collective pride, collective joy, uh, were very much evident in my family as a result of my attending college. Having lived through what our generation lived through, having not just heard about it, but actually lived seeing everything taken away from your parents, starting again in a new country, your parents, like my parents and everyone of that generation taking jobs that they would have never imagined taking. Um, was there a sense of responsibility seeing what they had been through to make something of yourself? Was there ever a sense of looking back and saying, wow, you know, they work so hard. They, 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 you know, I just can't be the average Joe on the street. I need to do something fairly remarkable in order to make their sacrifice worthwhile. Did that ever cross your mind? Oh, absolutely. I, I always thought about the sacrifices my, my parents had made and the importance of me not disappointing them. Um, you know, there were lots of temptation was not growing up in the, the mid sixties in, in America. It was, a, it was a tumultuous time in America. And I was able to navigate those waters in many ways because I was so afraid that if I stepped too far out of line, 
that I would disappoint them because um, it meant so much for them that their son and, and my my sister uh, were getting an education and were on the way to a better life that, you know, the thought of doing something that would disappoint or betray that dream was um, what's a real um, uh, assistant, real help for me to be able to navigate and uh, work through a lot of those temptations. And as a result, I, I want to do the same thing for others. You know, I, I was fortunate to get education and to assume a position of leadership as dean of uh, you know, a major university, a school of education, preparing the next generation of, of teachers and school leaders, people who touch lives every day. And um, part of what drove me to that and what gave me the sense of satisfaction of being in such a career is the knowledge that I was now in a position where I could influence others, do for others, with my parents and, and mentors and others along the way who also helped me, uh, did for me. And so uh, I believe that um, not only uh, those of us who've been through these kinds of experience should remember our roots and where we come from, but be willing to give back. Mm. Um, and so the notion that it's really better to give than to receive is very much a part of, of who I am and, and the life that I've lived and, and my leadership style. I, to me, uh, everyone in the organization uh, that I work for um, has dignity and contributes and should be celebrated. You know, whether it's, it's the person who cleans the floors at night or the name professor or the technician, everything, everyone has worth and I want to help them succeed uh, just as I was helped to, to succeed. How has that, just, just beyond what you shared, how has that immigrant experience you've lived, <clears throat> having a front row seat to your parents' work ethic, made you a better or a different or unique dean in your professional life? You know, I, I I think those experiences and seeing how hard my parents work and, you know, my, my father worked six days a week from eight in the morning to eight at night. And then on Sundays, he would come here and fix the lawnmower and work on the air conditioning, always working. And um, he took such, such pride in what he did. And I think it's easy to think we were just a simple car mechanic. And he was a simple car mechanic. But he loved what he was doing. And it taught me that no matter what your place in life, if you love what you're doing, you can find happiness and satisfaction and can influence others to do what they love. And and so it's it's an idea that I've always carried with me into my my um, positions of of leadership. Is that you know even in the worst of days when I have to deal with all social problems and make decisions, I'd rather not. I felt that this is what I love doing, and I wanted to do it to the best of of my ability and encourage others 
to pursue their passions. Because in, in pursuing their passions, not only do they excel or whatever it is that they do, but they're able to impact others, whether it be family, organizations, communities, nations. And, and so my, my style of leadership is to welcome everyone to um, think of whoever's in front of me and whatever they bring to me as the most important thing of the moment. You know, not think of what I have to do, but in a position of, of leadership, particularly a dean of a major organization like I was, it took a lot of courage for someone to walk into my office and say, I want to see the dean. And in the whole scheme of things, maybe what their issue or problem or concern was is not a big thing, but for them it was important. And that made it important for me to pay attention to that. I see that was the most important thing that I needed to attend to. And, and these, these are lessons that I learned um, you know, as part of our, our family, our, our work ethic that was demonstrated to me, the compassion that I was shown. And um, you know, I, I remember I used to have the department chairs and other leaders in the school come to our home for holiday dinner. And one of the most memorable experiences that I had was one of the department chairs in just social small conversation saying to me, you know, Dean Gonzalez, you have a soft touch. And I didn't know exactly what that meant, you know, but what it meant is that she always felt respected, valued, and supported to, to be a leader in her own ways. And even though I haven't planned to be that way, it's something that comes natural to me. It's authentic. And I think a, a mark of leadership is to be authentic, to be genuine, and to celebrate others' achievement and, and to make sacrifices to help those who you serve. It's, it's really service. And that's something that I learned first and foremost with my family. And, and then again, great educators and, and great uh, mentors that I had throughout my life. A little empathy can go a long way. A long way, yes. A long way. Being able to understand empathy is, is a very important uh, quality, I think, yeah. to be able to, to look at the world from somebody else's perspective and, and to feel what they feel. It's, it's an important, important part of, of being a good leader. What would you say, in your opinion, immigrants in general bring to this country? Oh, immigrants contribute so much to this great country we call America. Um, you know, America was founded on the idea of being a land of opportunity. And it became a great nation because it provided opportunity to people who came and contributed. And so immigrants have a lived experience. They have a different perspective. They have oftentimes um, experienced the pain of separation from people they love from, from the land that they were born into. And I think that builds resilience. And as in my case, 
you admire those people who made the sacrifices before you so that you could have opportunities. And I think that then drives immigrants to excel and to give back and to adopt those ideals that I that I talked about. And and so America is richer because of the contributions that immigrants have made, make, and will continue to make because this nation uh, would not be as great as it is except for uh, what immigrants uh, bring to it um, culturally, linguistically, economically, and in so many other ways. Looking back on your life, what would you say you're the proudest of? What am I proud of? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I got so much to be first of first of all grateful for um, the opportunities, the um, the lessons in life and living, and what I'm most proud of is the opportunity to, to be able to give back. Um, my father, again, was a very um, loving person, never spoke ill of anyone, except maybe Fidel Castro. And, you know, from time to time, he would say, you know, something about Fidel Castro and and how our life had been different because of what he he represented. But when Fidel passed away, um, my father was still alive. And I asked him what he thought about Fidel's death. He thought for a moment and he said, you know, I used to wish he were dead. But as time passed, I began, I began to wish him a long life because he would have to live with his conscience. And the lesson in that is we all have to live with our conscience and it's important that we seek to do good. And so I'm proud that, you know, I, I lived a life where I have sought to do good. Um, I've had my failures and my disappointments, um, but overall, you know, I tried to be honest, honor the memory and the sacrifices my parents made, the values that this land holds, the, the principles of democracy, uh, those things which I think as immigrants we wanted to find and we wanted to pursue, and I've been able to to live that way, and I'm very proud of it. Gerardo Gonzalez, like millions of immigrants before him, renews our faith in the American experiment. The life he's led and the contributions he's made to our society simply would not have been possible in our native Cuba. Here in the U.S., despite our many flaws, the son of an auto mechanic can indeed rise to become a leading educator and a published author. And by honoring the sacrifices of his immigrant parents' generation, Professor Gonzalez proves once again the merits of a once generous American immigration policy 
that welcomed hundreds of thousands of refugees from all around the world, regardless of economic or social status. If you enjoy our stories, please subscribe to the Immigrant Archive Project podcast on your favorite platform. I also invite you to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and if the mood strikes you, consider leaving us a review. The Immigrant Archive Project is edited and co-produced by Edie Gonzalez, our Director of Photography, the one and only Daniel Godoy. For more stories, please visit us online at immigrantarchiveproject.org. I'm Tony Hernandez. Thank you for listening. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.